In the fall of 2012, a liminal space for Denise and me, a transition between two spaces, between two states of being. Denise and I visit a professor friend of ours, a professor of mine when I was at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and a family friend, Dr. Bill Toller in Fort Worth, Texas. He was a professor at the school where I received uh, my graduate degree. Denise and I were in crisis in our careers and in our spirituality. We were deconstructing and we needed some guidance and Dr. Toller was one of our many guides. In our two-day visit with Dr. Toller and his wife, Dr. Toller assured me that I was not a heretic. Take a note. From his perspective, I was not a heretic. And he clarified for Denise and me what really mattered in the Christian life, and that was living the way of Jesus. He, with deep emotion, shared with Denise and me the experience of his and other professors and the president of the seminary when they were all dismissed by the brand new board of directors who accused these professors and the president of the seminary as being too liberal for that school. One of the many things that he said that stands out to me was this. The new seminary board was hateful and just mean in the way they treated us and the way they treated President Dilday. So here was a group of men, the seminary board, who were doctrinally orthodox. They would check off every box in their particular system of Christian theology. They were doctrinally pure, yet they showed a spirit of hate, spirit of pride, just meanness. So my question is, can one check all of the theological boxes, the doctrinal boxes, and yet not be like Jesus? And the opposite question, can one not check all of the theological doctrinal boxes, but be like Jesus? Can one believe the right things and not follow Jesus? Can one not believe the, quote, right things and still follow Jesus? I think of this man, Gandhi. I was first introduced to Gandhi by the writings of E. Stanley Jones, whose books were in my dad's library where I would spend quiet, meaningful hours upon hour upon hour just being in the presence of books enjoying just sitting there where all of these thoughts and ideas were written on pieces of paper. E. Stanley Jones was a Christian missionary to India, and he was a good friend to Gandhi. E. Stanley Jones one time asked Gandhi this question, Mr. Gandhi, though you quote the words of Christ often, why is it that you appear, make sure you all are seeing that too, that you appear to so adamantly reject 
becoming his follower or a Christian? Here was Gandhi's answer. Oh, I don't reject your Christ. I love your Christ. It is just that so many of you Christians are so unlike your Christ. So how can people check all of the doctrinal theological boxes of Christian theology in their particular system, yet not live and express the character of Jesus? So the question that arises out of these experiences is this. Which is more important? Orthodoxy, which is a fancy word for right beliefs, correct beliefs, or orthopraxy, fancy word for right or correct behavior. It's all a matter of priorities. Andy Owen is the uh, CEO of a furniture company called Miller Knoll, who makes this mid-century modern Eames chair. I want that chair so bad. <laughs> I think it's like, what, you see how much is that, 5,000 or more? I'm not going to get that chair. <laughs> but uh, Ms. Owen tried to rally her troops by telling her employees, don't throw a pity party. She's on a Zoom meeting. The company was not meeting its sales goal of $26 million. So she was trying to motivate the team, her employees. And she told them not to have a pity party. Don't focus on uh, whether or not they were going to get their bonus this year, but focus on making those sales. And so she said, their bonus isn't that big of a deal. Don't worry about the bonus. She got a little bit of pushback for that because she had received that year a compensation of over $5 million that included a $4 million bonus. And the median income for the company is $45,000. And it brings up the question, what is a company's priority? Is a company's priority the people who work for that company, the customers, the stockholders? Too often, I'm afraid, the answer is the stockholders. Simon Sinek, who is a guru in business and a motivational speaker, says this, there is an order, and the order matters, order of priority. The great CEOs recognize that their responsibility is not the result. The responsibility is to take care of the people who are responsible for the result, and the rest takes care of itself. So I, it is true. I, that deserves a hearty amen. That's true in companies. It's true in church world. But I wonder if when it comes to doctrine or practice, doctrine or living a life of love, have we gotten the order wrong? Have we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable? <laughs> the emphasis in my experience growing up in the Southern Baptist Convention has always been on what you believe. Can you check off the boxes of your particular theology? 
And it showed because to get Sunday morning started off right, the moment we arrived at the church building, we went to this hour-long, age-appropriate class. And just so to make sure that we would not forget why we're there, the class was called Sunday School. We We were there to learn the right belief. We were there to learn the correct doctrine. And so after Sunday school was over, we went to big church, auditorium, where the adults were, we called it the sanctuary then. And then the preacher stood up and he taught a lesson on what to believe. In fact, we were encouraged to take notes on the lesson because there would be a test. Church was a school. It was about learning the right doctrine, the correct thinking. The goal in all of this was to know what you believe so you could live a life of complete certainty. So you could defend your faith when it was attacked by the liberals and the Democrats. When it was attacked by the Roman Catholics and Oprah. Know why you believe, know what you believe, know how to defend what you believe, and know how to convince other people to believe what you believe. But then I ran into a problem as an older teenager, college student, young pastor. The problem I ran into was people. I discovered that there were a lot of people in the churches And as a PK, preacher's kid, dad would sometimes um, allow his frustration with people be seen by his kids. And then I saw it myself as a preacher, as a pastor, that people who take pride in their doctrinal integrity and their theological knowledge and their correct belief were some of the meanest people I've ever seen on earth. And they were hateful, they were disrespectful, they were just unkind. They could check every theological box, but they did not have or did not express the love and grace and humility of Jesus. A server and a restaurant came home. She was still living with her folks, and she told her mom, I just hate it when groups of Christian women come in to eat. And her mom knew exactly why, but she asked, well, what happened? Why is that? And the daughter explained that they were rude, demanding, entitled, and to top it off, they were very poor tippers. And her story is not an isolated one. One server received this comment upon the receipt. I'm sorry I cannot tip because I don't agree with your lifestyle. Another server received this as a tip. It's a fake $20 bill. Don't be fooled. There is something you can have more valuable than money And there was a nice gospel tract right there. 
I introduced you to Jesus. <laughs> and let's not forget about the pastor who informed the Applebee's server that he was not leaving a tip because I give God 10%. Why do you get 18? Well, he's already shortchanged her right there with 18. Robert P. Jones, Ph.D., is the president and founder of PRRI. It's called, it stands for Public Religion Research Institute. He's the go-to guy if you ever want to know what Americans are thinking about religion. Dr. Jones says this, For more than two decades, I've studied the attitudes of religiously affiliated Americans across the country. Year after year, in question, and year over year, in question after question, in public opinion polls, a clear pattern has emerged. White Christians are consistently more likely than whites who are religiously unaffiliated to deny the existence of structural racism. And white Christians are about 30% points more likely to say monuments to Confederate soldiers are symbols of Southern pride rather than symbols of racism. White Christians are also about 20 percentage points more likely to disagree with this statement. Generations of slavery and discrimination have created conditions that make it difficult for blacks to work their way out of the lower class. And then he concludes, as a white Christian who was raised Southern Baptist and shaped by a denominational college and seminary, it pains me to see these patterns in the data. Even worse, these questions only hint at the magnitude of the problem. Brother, I hear you. Why is it that my religious heritage where I was taught to click off and to be able to adhere to pure theological maxims seemed to be more racist than anybody else in the country. Along the way in my life, and we're in this series, How Love Transformed My Worldview, and love transformed my Emphasis from doctrinal purity to how I live my life. Along the way, I discovered that doctrine and theology was no longer at the top of my list. In fact, I didn't even have it on the list at all. It fell completely off. I got at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth a Master of Divinity, as if you could actually master divinity. It's kind of egotistical, isn't it? And theology, I discovered, and it was kind of weird, became a point where it just didn't matter to me anymore. I love to study theology, and I love to talk about theology, but it just wasn't that important anymore. So I want to tell you real quick three reasons why not, three reasons that I was transformed from focusing on doctrine and theology to, to focus on love. First reason is this. Believing the right things, in my observation, 
did not translate into living a life of love. Most, if not all, of those who made a perfect score on their doctrinal test would all say that Gandhi was going to hell because he was not a Christian, because he didn't believe the right things. And I honestly, when I read these books by, in my dad's library about Gandhi, I had a hard time with that. And remember, I was in high school when I was reading these books. And these thoughts became a part of my confusion. How could Gandhi go to hell simply because he didn't check off these theological maxims? I've got a book by Will Durant, who's an historian. He wrote a whole series on the story of civilization, and I couldn't afford but the first volume. <laughs> but in that volume, he said this. Speaking of Gandhi, Gandhi did not mouth the name of Christ, but acted as if he accepted every word on the Sermon on the Mount. Not since St. Francis of Assisi has any life known to history been so marked by gentleness, disinterestedness, simplicity, and forgiveness of enemies. I had to look up disinterestedness because that doesn't sound positive to me. It sounds like, well, I'm just not interested. But according to Google Dictionary, that word in those times anyway meant a freedom from bias, to be impartial. And I thought, my gosh, Durant, you're exactly right. That guy was so much like Jesus, yet my religious tradition assigned him to hell because he did not have the right belief. And it made me think, we are so screwed up <laughs> that we would put doctrinal, an assent to a doctrinal statement over and above the life of a person. And I have been think, scratching my head. I don't scratch my head anymore on that. I think I'm pretty settled. I could still be wrong, but I think I'm pretty settled. And I'm thinking today that I think it's time for Christians to recognize that Hindus like Mahatma Gandhi was a far, far greater follower of the way, the truth, the life, which Jesus called himself, than fundamentalist preachers like Fred Phelps, who could check every theological box, yet spewed from his mouth such venom and hate and disgusting words about people. So, the first reason I have reversed my priorities and doctor's no longer at the top, but love is at the top. It's because I've seen too many people in church world, pastors, I mean churches that I pastored, who had very good grades on their doctrinal test, but they just did not show the spirit of the Lord. I met atheists who would fail their doctrinal test, but had very much a lifestyle of service and a lifestyle of, of humanitarian behavior. And I was convinced that I had put too much emphasis on doctrine. The second reason, I took a look at history, the first 300 years of Christianity. 
It was all about following the teaching of Jesus, following the way of Jesus. In fact, the followers of Jesus in the very first century were called uh, in the book of Acts written by Luke, uh, people of the way. You can look at these passages. I don't have them all written out, but these are times in the book of Luke or a book of Acts written by Luke that the early Christians, followers of Jesus, were called people of the way because Jesus had a way of living. He had a way of loving. He had a way of treating people. He had a way of responding to people. He had a way of uh, treating his enemies. He had a way of, in his values and his priorities. And this group of followers followed that way. And for 300 years, Christians were just simply known for following the teachings and following the way of Jesus. They were not defined by a creed. If you, you could almost say, I guess, that Jesus is Lord was a creed of theirs. We see that in the New Testament quite a bit. But really, Jesus as Lord was like a in-your-face to the Caesar uh, of the time because he called himself Lord. And the Christians were saying, no, Jesus is Lord. It's about time that I think we Americans need to do that too. In the Christians in America. So, in the first 300 years, if you tried to live like Jesus, then you were considered a Christian. There was no doctrinal purity test. But then along came this guy, Constantine. He came to power over the Roman Empire. When he did, he put an end to feeding Christians to the lions for lunch. And that was a good thing. But then he officiated at the wedding, marrying the church and the state. And that was a bad thing. At the time that Constantine came to power, there were a lot of different beliefs on Christian doctrine. There were different beliefs about God, different beliefs about Jesus and about the Trinity, about salvation. And there were these different groups, like there are kind of different groups today. But Constantine was bothered by that. And he said, I want to unite the empire. I want to control the empire. And I'm going to do it through the church. One way I'm going to do it is through the church. So he got all the church leaders together and he said, I want you guys because there were no women there, of course, uh, and he want you guys to come up with one agreed-upon theological system, a creed. And so the bishops all agreed on that. They complied, and they developed a system of belief. And from that time on, from 300 all the way to the 21st century, We have been taught, at least in the evangelical world of which I grew up, that to be a true Christian, one had to believe certain things. One had to adhere to a certain set of doctrinal statements. The focus for these all these hundreds of years has been on correct doctrine, correct belief, orthodoxy. But today something's going on, isn't there? Maybe you've noticed it. Maybe you've experienced it. That people are moving away from the emphasis on doctrine. And they're moving toward a more spiritual Christianity. While at the same time finding some commonality with other faiths. So what interests me most now. Is not so much what people think about God or what their theology is, the study of God. 
what interests me most now is how to experience the love of God in my life and helping other people to do that too. And this is why I, along with many other people, welcome the spiritual guidance of Hindus, of Muslims, of Buddhists. Anyone who could help me and help the planet understand and live out a life of love are my allies. There was a time that there was a guy in the New Testament stories who was healing people, and he wasn't with the disciples. And the disciples came over to Jesus and said, look at that guy. He's not in our group, and he's healing people. Do you want us to call fire on his head? Because that's what we do with people outside of our group. And Jesus said, no, nah, you don't have to do that. Anyone who does anything in my name is part of that group. Was Gandhi a part of that group? I think so. He did a lot of things in the name of Christ, the spirit of Christ. He just didn't do them in the name of Christians. And I, along with many of you possibly, are therefore allies of anyone who would lead us to a life of love. Love is not automatically suspect simply because it's from another group if it's not Christian love. Love, if it is love, is love. Third reason. What if the church preferred the path of Jesus over the path of theology? If you read Jesus' stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll notice when Jesus had an interaction with people, he was never talking to them about what they believed about him. What he wanted to talk to them about was, were they willing to trust him? Not what their theology was. He did talk to the woman at the well about theology a little bit. But her theology was different than his, and it really didn't matter. Jesus' emphasis was always upon their trusting him, not about a particular theological position. In fact, Jesus insisted that we come to him as a faith of a child. And how many children do you know uh, are theological scholars? Daniel, you can't be baptized until you explain to me the eschatological ramifications of the preliminary view of Jesus' coming. Give me a paper on the different views of atonement before you can be baptized. We never ask our children for a theological explanation. Let the children come to me. And Jesus insists that adults come to him with the same faith as a child. It's like when Daniel or Devin, when, we, when they were little, we were in a motel swimming pool or something. And uh, I'd be in the pool and they'd be on the diving board or on the side of the pool. And I would hear out of the blue... Catch me, Daddy. And before I could know, I turn around and Daniel's in the air flying. <laughs> Daniel didn't figure out the width of the pool, the length of the pool, the depth of the water. All he was doing was jumping into the arms of a guy, his dad, 
whom he knew would catch him. All Jesus was really interested in was in people trusting him, not in their theological purity. Trusting him and his way of life. Because his way of life was radical. It was hard to trust Jesus. It was hard to follow Jesus. The guy who said, forgive your enemies. The guy who said, go the second mile. The guy who was putting the last first and the first last. was turning everything upside down. It was hard to follow that way. But Jesus was saying, I want you to trust me that this is the way to live. That the way of, to live is a life of love. It's the best way of forgiveness, of mercy, of humility. Trust me that that is the way to live your life. Oh, it's a lot easier to take a theological test than it is to forgive your enemy. You can learn theology at school. You can learn theology on your own online. You could get a degree in apologetics and you can defend your faith. That's not what Jesus is after. He's after all of us, all of us to love. Live this life of love. You know, when it's all about theology, it's easy for love just to go out the window. And that's what we've seen in Christian history with the heresy hunters of the Inquisition, with the Crusades, with the KKK, with the racist and bad behavior today at the hands of people who are theologically pure. Well, Philip, should we not even worry about theology? Should we not know theology? Should we not try to learn more about theology? No, I'm not saying that at all. Some of the most theologically astute people are the Peanuts gang. Snoopy's writing a document, Theology and the Dog. And he says, as it says in the ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Charlie Brown asked, what does that mean? Snoopy says, I don't know, but I agree with it. There are so many things that will benefit us by studying theology. Engage in theology, but be humble with it. Recognizing that your theology may be wrong. Mine may be wrong. And don't use theology as a litmus test for who is in and who is out. Jesus never said, people will know that you are my disciples because you are a Trinitarian, because you are one who holds to the substitutionary atonement, because you use the Wesleyan quadrilateral approach to religion. What did Jesus say? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Churches, I have failed as a pastor. I have taught people theology, and that's an easy thing to do. The hard thing to do is to teach people to love. To love God, 
to absolutely love themselves and to love others. And because that's so hard to do, we've gone the default, just taught theology instead of loveology. Let's pray. God, forgive us as pastors, as church leaders for not emphasizing what Jesus emphasized. Open our hearts to the Spirit of Christ that is throughout the universe. Help us to understand what Jesus means when he tells us to go and understand what this is to love mercy, not sacrifice, not the sacrificial system. Help us to understand what Jesus means when he tells us to, as we've done it to the least of these, we've done it to him. Help us to understand what James says, that without faith, without works, our faith is dead. Just help us to love better. Help us to spend time in contemplation of you so that we will know that you love us. Help us to reflect that love to other people. And help us to wrap our arms around ourselves and love us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.